Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones about her new center at Howard University that she's starting with Tony Easy Coates and her decision to end conversations with UNC where she had been offered a position but hadn't been offered tenure like everyone else had who had been in that job and what she learned from that whole process and why she thinks it's so important to do this work at Howard, which is aimed at increasing diversity in journalism. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on this new center at Howard, which sounds amazing. And I want to get into that with you. First, though, it's been it's been about a week, um, less than a week, since you announced that you're creating this and that you won't be going to UNC. And you said in a statement at the time that, that the whole period of, of the, the tenure process and the debate and, and all of that was an incredibly dark period for you. I'm wondering, how, how are you feeling now? Oh, thanks for asking. I mean, now um, I feel great. I feel excited about what I'm going to help build at Howard and, and joining that um, illustrious and important university. Um, everything worked out not as I planned initially, but it, it worked out well. And, and I think that this is um, going to be actually much more suited to my overall mission. I mean, by the way, if, if, if for those who haven't read it, that statement that you put out, well, I thought was extraordinary, both as, as a corrective to kind of the narratives that have been built up around this whole thing, and also, you know, insights into why this effort at Howard was so important. But one of the things that struck me at it is that you, you said it worked out. It wasn't the way you intended. I mean, it seems like almost none of this was in a way you intended. I mean, you didn't like set out to go take an academic job at UNC. It was just something that was personally an, a passion of yours and the place was important to you, right? Yes. So as you know, I have a pretty intense full-time job already and I wasn't looking uh, to go into academia at this point in my career, but I had, you know, I, I have a great relationship with Dean Susan King. We've been in conversation for several years, and um, you know, when she presented me with the night chair in particular, and then you know that the chair would be race and investigative reporting, it just will at, of course, my alma mater, where I'd already moved the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, it just seemed uh, too good to pass up. And um, so I agreed to apply for the position. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I sought out. It should be noted that nobody who, had, who has taken that job has ever been denied tenure. Right. So the, the particular chair at the University of North Carolina those chairs come with tenure. So they are designed to bring professionals directly from the field uh, into academia and they come with tenure. And in fact, Knight's contract with the university had to be amended in order to allow um, me to take the job without tenure. So yeah. it's very clear I was treated differently from everyone who has ever held that position at the university. Yeah. And I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this, although I do think it's important here to reaffirm what you said in that statement, which um, which corrected one of the main um, misconceptions of all this, which was that you did not you did not seek to stir this up. 
this was something that a reporter, a local reporter, discovered that, that you had been denied this tenure. And, and actually the right sort of jumped on, right? Yes. So the last thing I wanted was want to fight with uh, my alma mater. And again, I have a great relationship with the journalism school as well as Dean King. And I also didn't want everyone who had supported me to know that I was denied tenure, essentially. But those who uh, advocated behind the scenes for me not to get tenure were not satisfied simply with me not getting that. Um, They were actually upset that I would be teaching at the university at all. And so, yes, they wrote a couple articles about it, which tipped off um, the very good local reporter, uh, Joe Killian, with NC Policy Watch, and, you know, the rest is history. Did you not want them to know this because you were embarrassed? Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things. So one, yes, it is embarrassing um, to have achieved kind of everything that I have worked hard to achieve in my career, to be at this point in my career, to be recruited to a position, um, to have your, you know, I had to make special arrangements with my bosses in order to even be able to accept a position like this. Um, And part of the reason they were willing to let me do it was it it came with tenure. And so to have done all of that and then have to acknowledge publicly that um, I wasn't, for whatever reason, going to get tenure. I wasn't good enough uh, to be treated the same as everyone else. It was embarrassing. Um, And also, it just, um, you know, I've been kind of attacked for months now. I've been in the media uh, for my work on the 1619 Project, and I just didn't want another public fight or another reason for conservatives who dislike me and uh, my work to gloat um, and to drag me into something. So it really is the last thing that I wanted. So tell me how the Howard Center and Night Chair came about. I think I read a tweet of yours saying that some people had asked you why you'd never pursued a job at a historically black college. And you said, because no one had asked. Is that right? Yes. Um, I mean, again, I hadn't pursued a job in academia, period, but I certainly had been approached by other journalism schools um, throughout my career, but I had not ever been approached by a historically black college. Um, I mean, how it came about was I was having conversations with Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is a a dear friend of mine, and Mm -hmm. I was telling him, you know, if I don't end up going to Carolina you know, I'm, I'm getting all of these um, reach outs from prestigious journalism programs at predominantly white institutions across the country. And I told him, if I don't go to Carolina, I'm going to go to a historically black college. I, I decided that pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I really would like you to talk to Dr. Frederick at Howard. Mm-hmm. I really think you should go to Howard. And in fact, if you go to Howard, I'll go to Howard. So, um so he introduced us, and then we just started having conversations. That's amazing. So, so and and Coates is a, a grad of Howard, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's not a graduate. He he didn't actually graduate, um, but he it. is an alum of Howard, and he's and he's actually going to be finishing his degree there. What point did you decide, even if the the ten year thing comes through at UNC, you're not going to do it? You know, people keep asking me that, and I can't say there was just like a single day or a single moment where I decided that. Um, A lot of things added up over the course of the six weeks where 
it became clear it was going to be uh, difficult for me to take the job, even if I got the vote. But we should be clear on the timeline. I did not know until two days before the deadline uh, of July 1st, which I had already let university know I was not going to start in that position mm-hmm. on July 1st without uh, tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know until two days before that, that there was even going to be a vote. So I had to make other plans. It wasn't clear that I was going to get a vote at all. And then certainly uh, wasn't clear what the vote was going to ultimately be. Um, But as I've said, the kind of last straw of one were to say was um, watching the way those students were treated um, at that board meeting when they were protesting for the vote to be open and for me to be granted tenure. Yeah. So talk to me about what you want to do um, in, in, at Howard in this new center. So it was really important for me not to just um, help get resources that would allow me to come to Howard uh, with my night chair, but to also um, be bringing resources that would benefit the entire School of Communications, as well as other historically Black colleges, as well as our field. Because one thing, again, I've said this, I I got a lot of clarity in these last six weeks, for sure. I had a lot of time to think about what this all meant and what is my larger purpose. And so the Center for Journalism and Democracy is really going to work to train journalists to rise to this perilous moment that we're in in our democracy, Um, understanding that uh, I think journalism is the firewall of our democracy. And um, we need journalists who are uh, trained in investigative and accountability journalism, but also who have the historical context to understand the moment that we're in and explain that moment that that we're in uh, to our country. And I think that in the tradition of the Black press, uh, there are fewer uh, communities that I think have uh, as an astute understanding of American politics and the perils of American democracy than Black Americans. And so I really want to use the center to bolster uh, just the skills of journalism and investigative journalism and to provide resources to journalism programs at historically Black colleges across the country uh, who have had to punch above their weight and have never had the type of resources that a, a program like the University of North Carolina School of Journalism um, can provide. So it's not just increasing the numbers of uh, Black journalists graduating from, from Howard, but it's also to, to help train them in a way to think about the coverage that isn't happening now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Howard's already producing uh, a significant number of Black journalists who are going into newsrooms and doing amazing mm-hmm. work. Um, but I I think that what this moment calls for is more investigative reporting, more accountability reporting, and reporting, again, that has that historical uh, and racial context. Uh, How do we understand January 6th without understanding the racial history of our country? And how do we understand why we're seeing, um, you know, the largest uh, efforts to suppress the vote since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965? How do we explain all of that and how to report? we report on it with the gravitas that is necessary and the understanding that is necessary without future journalists who know how to dig it through archives, who are reading historical works, who are, uh, you know, 
also um, able to put this in the context of, of where we've been in the past, but also do investigative reporting that can unveil the way that power is being wielded with that very skeptical eye. So I'm not here to just produce to help produce more journalists. Historically, Black colleges are already doing that. I'm here to really uh, train us to our uh, highest calling or to help train us to our highest calling. You said that this period you had sort of epiphanies. I don't think that's the word you used, but that's what I thought. <laughs> and and you, you just said what, what the result of that. I assume that you held a lot of these, you know, you, you, would have, you would have said something very similar before this period, but what was really, what, what shifted in you specifically? Uh, again, you know, since the 1619 Project has come out, um, my life has changed a great deal. And my understanding of kind of the role I can or should play has, uh, has shifted as well. So I think I, I certainly have held a lot of these beliefs um, for a while, and I've been developing these beliefs over time, as as human beings do. I'm I'm 45 years old. I, I've lived a while. I've done journalism for 20 years, but I I, I guess I just um, I I tweeted about this a bit. I, I've also studied power mm-hmm. uh, a lot, and this moment felt like a moment that I could, uh, when people were trying to uh, diminish me, um, that I could. I could come into my power in a very particular way Mm -hmm. that instead of using whatever power I have to force my way into an institution, that I could actually use that uh, power in a way that built up institutions that already exist um, to support people like me and students who, um, who are like I was. Um, And to send really, a message, you know, I, I would be lying if reading, if I didn't ad- acknowledge that reading all of the the things that uh, Walter Hussman, the wealthy donor mm-hmm. who um, I think obviously had some influence over what happened with my tenure situation was saying about the type of journalism I do, what he considers the, the right way to do, do journalism, which I've, you know, long disavowed. Mm-hmm. Um that we, it just, it helped me understand that maybe my role was was more than just teaching kids in a predominantly white school journalism in a classroom, that uh, there needed to be a larger pushback and a larger effort um, to weigh in on the values of our profession and, and what should be our higher calling in this moment. I just don't, I don't think the journalism has ever been neutral Mm-hmm. It, it clearly hasn't. And um, very few of us get into this profession because we want to be stenographers, uh-huh. because we just want to record what happened. We get into this because uh, we want to make a difference, because yeah. we want to hold power accountable. This isn't neutral. We should stop talking about it as if it is. And, and Black Americans have never had the luxury of pretending so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess it just made me realize that I could do and should do in this moment something much bigger um, than just secure, you know, uh, a teaching position for myself. I and others have been pretty critical of the mainstream press um, in its coverage of Trump and Trump years and of January 6th and even going back earlier to the coverage of Charlottesville. 
um, and, you know, and, and sort of trying to silo race as a kind of like, as a separate factor in all this, as opposed to the through line, which is something that you mentioned earlier. How much of your, because you could have chosen a different route, which was to go to a predominantly white Ivy League school or non-Ivy League school, whatever, and try to make these same kind of change there. Is it your sense that turning that ship is was going to be just way more daunting than doing it at, at a historically black college? No. Um, I mean, the thing is, the decision I made uh, had lots of variables. And um, I think the the political circumstance we're in, of course, is, is very complicated. And no one person, uh, certainly not me, um, can shift anything by myself. Um, so when I was making this decision, I was I was thinking one that the the most expected thing for me to do in this moment was to go when I was um, you know kind of shunned by an elite white institution. The University of North Carolina is the oldest public university in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the flagship of uh, the North Carolina you know um, public university system. That the most predictable thing, expected thing, would be for me to go to an even more elite white school to mm-hmm. try to prove something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just almost physically had a rejection to that thought. That at, at this point, having made it to the top of um, you know the, um, I don't want to say to the top, but having made it into you know the most elite. I think you can say you made it to the top with with (laughs) surprise in your back pocket. Go ahead. Well, it's just, you know, it's like, what else do I have to prove? And and I think people expected that. I mean, someone told me the biggest, the most, it seems like the most powerful message you could have sent was to go to Duke. I actually think that would have been less of a powerful message. And that the most powerful message is to say, at some point we have to stop deriving as black Americans, as marginalized, as members of marginalized groups, we have to stop deriving our power from these institutions. And that, yes, I I do think it is necessary what uh, I will be teaching and what the center uh, will be producing, I think is necessary in all of our journalism programs. Um, But I also think that it is necessary um, to go to a place that has never had the type of funding um, mm-hmm. and resources that it deserves and help those students. Um, and that I come out of that tradition mm-hmm. and that is the tradition that I hope to build. But I think if we're successful, you know, your Columbia's, your University of North Carolina's, your uh, Northwestern's uh, should be looking to how we are instructing the students at Howard and implementing that as well. Um, but my role can't be to, you know, uh, and, I, and I shouldn't be, and I, I'm not that I'm not that amazing, right? That I, I can fix all that's wrong. I, um, you know, there's plenty of criticism of, of my own journalism to be had, uh, and I've, I've seen it. Um, but I think for the mission that I wanted to do at this, at this moment, uh, what felt most right and um, the message to, you know, so many black journalists and black academics were watching how I handled this 
And it was so important to me to send a message that affirmed who we are and that we we just don't have to um, get our worth uh, from elite white institutions, that our, our worth can come from the institutions we have built. And that's the message I had to send through this. And I also just, it, it's the work that I have done my entire career. The Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting is housed at the University of North Carolina, uh, but it exists to increase the number of investigative journalists of color. Um, that, that's the work that I do. Finally, you, you, you've made the point that you're, the goal of this isn't just to increase the number of uh, black journalists coming out of a place like Harvard or in general, um, because there are already a, lot, a ton of terrific people um, coming out of that school and others. But the fact remains that the um, number of journalists of color working in newsrooms across the country remains woefully low compared to the population. There's been some high-profile um, changes to that in recent months. The overall trend line is still terrible, and it has been since you know since you know it's been what more than 50 years since the Kerner Commission focused on this and and identified this as something that needs to change, and and not a lot has changed. What is your sense of optimism that that actually could happen? Hmm. Uh, in general, I don't tend towards optimism. Um, and I, I certainly don't feel optimistic about this. Uh, we have seen that um, the needle has barely budged for particularly Black journalists, but also other journalists of color in newsrooms and particularly in positions of power in those newsrooms. And in fact, in, in some newsrooms, the number has declined. Uh, we've seen all of these new journalism startups, uh, investigative startups that are actually whiter um, mm -hmm. than the legacy newsrooms. Mm -hmm. And so even when starting from scratch, they are replicating the same hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, I'm not sure how old you are, but I've been a journalist now for two decades. And I remember coming in, hearing the same you know, mm -hmm. assertions of how diversity matters and, oh, we've got to change because our, our country's mm -hmm. demographics are changing. But, you know, despite... 20 years of hearing that, uh, the numbers are still abysmal. And after a while, you just have to stop believing that it's sincere. Um, so no, I don't, I, I don't have a great deal of optimism. Um, but, well, I guess, you know, I always say that and then people tell me that clearly I'm optimist because I'm, I'm still working to change things where I can. You know, I, I, I helped co-found the Ida B. Wells Society because I wanted to take away the excuse about why we don't see Black journalists in uh, investigative positions because, you know, so we're going to train and mentor people. And we are seeing impacts of that. And the, and the Center for Journalism and Democracy, again, training uh, Black journalists to be able to go and, and take these prominent positions in newsrooms. So while I'm not optimistic, I, I think that not being optimistic does not alleviate of uh, the obligation and the duty to try to change um, our profession for the better, because I do truly believe diversity is not about political correctness. It's not about feeling good. It's about accurately, truthfully, and fairly covering our multiracial democracy. And that's needed, I think. I don't want to say now more than ever, because that's a bit hyperbolic, but I think we are at a very particularly... Uh, perilous moment in our country where having uh, diversity in newsrooms that can ensure our coverage uh, gets it right is just going to be critical. You said that you don't, you're not, 
you don't really see yourself as pessimistic on on the hiring front, but but only because you're you the optimism comes from doing taking actions like what you're doing with Tony's codes at, at Howard. But well, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I'm yeah. I'm I just consider myself realistic, which right. is uh, all we have to do is look at the track record. Right, we can look right. at the track record um, and know that if if the people who ran newsrooms wanted more diversity, they would have it. Yeah. They know how to find anything else that they want. Uh, so uh, I'm just realistic. So how are you going to do all this? Um, <laughs> like, really? Um, you're, first off, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to stay based in New York? Yes. Okay. How do you envision like your split of time? Is it 50-50 between the Times work and this work? Or how do you think about it? You know, I, I'm insane. So I have no idea how I'm going to do everything um, that's already on my plate and then add this as well. I certainly don't think it's going to be a 50-50 split. Um, you know, my work at the Times takes a great deal of my time and energy. We have uh, two books coming out this fall. We have five more 16, 19 books that will be coming out oh as well gosh. as TV and film. And then I, I, you know, I still work on the magazine. So I, I'm not sure uh, how exactly <laughs> I'm going to split myself into yet another piece. But I also, I, I just feel such a, um, a weight of obligation that I am in a particular place in my career, my life, where I can bring resources, um, I can bring a vision. And um, what I hope to do is what we've done with the Ida B. Wells Society is set up the vision, bring the resources, and then hire a really, you know, some really fabulous people to execute that vision. Um, I didn't have time to add this one big thing, but I just... I feel like I have a great debt. Uh, I've been so lucky um, and fortunate in my career and in what I've been able to do. Um, and I've had some really great mentors and people who've looked out for me. Uh, and I just feel like I'm in this position. I can't just use this position for my own benefit. I have to try uh, to use this uh, position for the benefit of of my community and in our country, and so you know, I'll, I'll figure it out just like I do everything else. Nicole, I wish you great success on all of this stuff, and you know, congratulations on on weathering this. It, it was to look at it from the outside was both infuriating but terrifying, and mm-hmm. um, and you did it in a kind of inspirational way, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. So you can follow our continuing coverage at CJR at CJR.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. See you next week.